Hello, I'm Dr. Thomas Rawson, and you're listening to Jamilcast. On today's episode, we sit down with the Deputy Director of Imperial College London's Jamil Institute, Professor Katarina Hauk. You will have heard across all our episodes so far of the effective health interventions, technologies and skill sets being developed to advance and improve public health the world over. Translating this research into real-world action is a challenge in itself, and one that always boils down to one basic necessity – money. I started actually studying all kinds of things because I didn't know what I wanted to uh, to do. And then I decided that I better do something that um, earns a living. So I thought economics is probably a good thing to study. When I heard the first lecture on health economics, I was hooked. And I thought, this is what I want to do. Katerina is a health economist, an expert in how we can best transform funding into life-saving treatments. In this episode, Katerina kindly joined me to discuss the ways that health economics drives the breadth of the world's health interventions, schemes and efforts to improve public health. The first point to understand, she explained, is that the economics of health are usually not subject to the same economic forces we see everywhere else in our lives, opening themselves up as their own very distinct area of research. Economics is most interesting when the private markets don't work. When you buy a TV or a car, you do that usually on a market which is functioning very well, where the price is leading to a market equilibrium. There are not too many cars, there are not too few cars. The problem arises when these private markets fail, and they do that for all kinds of reasons. They may fail because there are monopolies, when there are public goods, things that are difficult to fund privately such as defense, for example, or healthcare. This is where economists are most needed. For many economists, the job involves a matter of optimizing value and efficiency. How can I maximize the money coming in and minimize the money going out? And in many sectors, this can be an easy problem to quantify. For example, how many cars are you selling? What advertising platforms are seen by our target audiences? How much stock do we need to meet demand? These are all questions which can be easily formulated as a nice mathematical expression. In health economics, the very definition of value is more tricky, and the types of problems you have to solve aren't so simply expressed. Many people think that value is cost saving. So we do an intervention, a prevention intervention, a vaccine, for example, testing or screening um, intervention, and that will then later save us money down the line in terms of averted treatment costs because people are not getting sick or they are not quite as sick because we have uh, found them earlier and diagnosed them earlier. So this would be cost-saving interventions if you see it over a longer time frame. However, unfortunately, the world is not like that. The world is that most healthcare interventions are actually not cost-saving. But despite of that, there is still, of course, an immense value for a country to invest in healthcare and in preventive interventions because what we are buying is health. Now, of course, we want to choose the intervention that for the budget we have buys us the most health that we can. And these are cost-effective interventions. 
So how actually do we measure health? So there are very sophisticated ways of measuring health, both the aspect of that we avert death and that we extend the life of individuals, but also that we avert sickness during the years that this person is alive. And health economists have worked out clever ways of bringing these two aspects, so both mortality and morbidity, into one measure. So these are quality-adjusted life years or disability-adjusted life years. Now, what I see often is that because the level of investment in health is so low in many of the poorest countries of the world, that the interventions that we evaluate are quite effective in reducing mortality. Now, of course, they will also reduce morbidity, but they are so effective often in reducing mortality that that makes up, I don't know, 90% of all the health benefit. And because it is so difficult to evaluate the impact on sickness or on morbidity of interventions, quite often we actually leave our analysis in life years gained. So that gives you an idea of the language used in the economics and measurement of health. Now, naturally, the stakeholders Katerina works with on a daily basis are, for the most part, governmental health departments. My next question then was how that relationship works. Do health economists simply tell governments how to run their health departments? Well, the truth is we don't. What we do is we evaluate ideally all services, preventive interventions, treatment interventions, drugs that a country could invest in. And then we compare them according to the value they generate in terms of health bought for the funding that we have. And we call that a basket of services. And it's often uh, in connection with universal health coverage that we think about basket of health services. This is the decision which services should be funded by the public sector and importantly, which services should not because we simply do not have the funds available to provide them. Where to draw the line, which services are still in the basket and which ones are outside of the basket, is of course on the one hand determined by the budget that the policymaker has, but then also other considerations that policymakers have. They very often do diverge from principles of cost-effectiveness, and rightly so, because they have objectives of equity, for example, that they want to provide certain services that are for disadvantaged populations, and they're willing to forego some of the health gain in order to achieve that. A second reason that they may diverge from recommendations as well is that Rarely, I mean, or never, we have what we call a zero-based approach where we say this is a clean slate, there is no funding and no healthcare provided, no prevention provided. So now let's start from scratch and design this healthcare system. I mean, of course, that doesn't exist. So we have an existing allocation of the budget. And then over time, the politically easier approach often is to gradually nudge the healthcare system to towards something that is more reflective of the objectives of the policymaker. Ensuring that your outcomes are in line with your objectives. Katerina's research career to date has seen her assessing the health returns on some of the biggest health intervention studies of the last decade. 
perhaps most notably the POPART study. For those not aware, POPART is the largest ever conducted test and treat study for HIV, bringing testing, medicine, counselling, facilities, community-led door-to-door support and questionnaires to over a million people across South Africa and Zambia. That's a huge amount of support, backed up by a huge amount of money. Everyone involved had a different role to play, and for Katerina, that was to lead on the economic evaluation of the programme while it was happening, building the picture of how far this money goes. I asked Katerina to walk us through this complicated process. So let me give you an example of how actually an economic evaluation looks like. How did our life look like conducting an economic evaluation alongside Popart? First, lots of calls, as you can imagine, with our um, hardworking country teams, but also our clinical collaborators who were making sure that the study was organized in a way that the primary endpoint of the study, which was a reduction in HIV incidence. So we tried to make sure that questions that are important for the economic evaluation are included in the questionnaire that was handed out to to participants in the study. This is important for policymakers in order to later on compare with other health interventions in very different areas. Also, other wider impacts we wanted to assess. For example, we wanted to see how is the impact on informal care? What is the burden on informal carers? What is the burden on employment, on welfare, on wealth, on income in these communities? Because we wanted to adopt as broad a perspective as possible in evaluating the cost effectiveness of the intervention. We also went then into the countries and visited each and every healthcare facility and collected our own economic data. So, for example, we needed to know how expensive was the building that was built in order to deliver the intervention. So, actually, I was there with our Zambian collaborators with a measuring tape and measured how big the building is (laughs) uh, in order to be able to calculate the these capital expenditures. It was very difficult, but it is important to disentangle the costs of the research from the actual intervention, because later on, when the intervention would be rolled out, the cost of the research would not be forming part of this intervention. So that's often quite difficult because, of course, the delivery of the intervention and the research component of the project are very strongly interlinked. We also, because this analysis required evaluation by mathematical modelers and epidemiologists, we integrated the economic evaluation into this modeling, which was an academic challenge. At the end of the trial, after all this effort, we knew then how much it cost to test each person with this intervention, how much it cost per positive case identified. We knew how much it cost to put people on treatment earlier versus putting them on treatment later. We knew the impact on hospitalizations. We knew the impact on primary care. We knew the impact on informal carers. And we could calculate also to policymakers how much it would cost to actually roll out that intervention. And that, of course, all fed into the overall estimate, which was for every dollar invested, 
how many life years do we gain and how many disability adjusted life years do we avert? Having answers to questions like that are the foundational building blocks of good public health programmes. Not only does it enable researchers and health ministries to allocate funds to the right places, it's also crucial work to be able to bid for funding in the first place. When you ask a government or NGO for a large pot of money to improve public health, they'll want to be able to see you're working, how you arrived at the number you're asking for. That simply can't be done without groundwork like Katarina's. As we alluded to earlier in the episode, however, there are many common pitfalls when performing these kind of analyses that have to be factored in, and usually with no one-size-fits-all solutions. So one important point is the affordability. You may find the intervention is great, it's cost-effective, it's highly efficacious, but if it's not affordable within the existing budget, then what do we do? A second important point is also the perspective from which the economic evaluation is conducted. Is it just more narrowly the healthcare system or is it more broadly a societal perspective? Because different impacts will be included and excluded depending on the perspective. Now, also, I think unquantifiable uncertainty is something that's really difficult to deal with. So, for example, now we are working on pandemic preparedness. How do we quantify the risk of a future pandemic of the severity of COVID occurring? But of course, this answering this question is really important because otherwise it's very difficult to decide how much do we invest in preparedness versus other important investments. And then some academic challenges, the integration of economic analysis with infectious disease modeling brings its own challenges, particularly when we think about how we treat uncertainty that arises both from the epidemiology and from the economic analysis. Now, if these challenges can prove hard work to overcome under controlled intervention circumstances, one can only imagine how difficult this work must be on an immediate reactive basis. I'm talking, of course, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Instead of working hard to answer questions on what to do in two or three years' time, the urgency of the pandemic needed insight into what to do right that very moment. I asked Katerina for more of her experience of how health economists were utilised during the pandemic, and her answer might surprise you. I think first, it was quite interesting to see that there wasn't actually much involvement of health economics in the pandemic response. It was also interesting to see that there was a clear prioritization in many healthcare systems in low, but also in high income countries of COVID patients potentially over other patients. The care of patients with non-COVID conditions suffered in many countries. Now, some think, and there's also some research to suggest that the life of a COVID patient saved was valued in a different way than the life of a patient with other conditions saved. The COVID patient was getting a higher value some say. So that means some of the funding that went into COVID response would have been potentially bought us more health if we would have kept up services for other critical conditions, such as cancers, such as other endemic infectious diseases in low and middle income countries. 
I think there will be a lot of research going on this question about how care was displaced and whether that actually led to loss of life. Now, of course, that is a bit of a simplified view and it doesn't hold for all situations. But of course, the great political pressure that there was on dealing with the pandemic created its challenges. The second was, I think, for health economists, we had to overnight turn into macroeconomists and into experts, into education, because the impacts, of course, of COVID were so far reaching that they go beyond anything what we usually assess as health economists. It was the impact on the wider economy, the impact of the lockdowns on gross domestic product, on unemployment, and the impact of closed schools on income loss for pupils that go far beyond the period of the pandemic into decades to come. So all these short, mid and long term impacts of the pandemic and the mitigation strategies adopted to evaluate that was super challenging. This experience Katerina speaks of, a difficulty in factoring health economics into the pandemic response, is an experience not just felt amongst the researchers of her field, but appears to have been on the minds of decision makers as well. Perhaps most notably, in a closed-doors governmental party meeting, former Prime Minister Theresa May reportedly asked whether it would be prudent to include more business-minded individuals within decision-making groups during the pandemic. I asked Katerina for her thoughts on this idea. During the pandemic, really the question was how much to involve the economic perspective in the immediate emergency response. Now, of course, on this occasion, I would agree with Theresa May. The approach we chose was to prioritize health over economic objectives. And there was kind of this idea, okay, we can fix what's wrong with the economy later. I'm not a macroeconomist. It's not on me to judge economic upheaval we see now with high inflation, challenges that we all face now with the cost of living crisis, in how far this kind of fix later approach of the economy how damaging that was, really. But overall, I think we should remember that in responding to a societal crisis such as COVID was, um, we should be concerned with maximizing societal welfare more broadly and not only health. That means we formulate policies that try to improve overall societal welfare. And I personally think that's only possible with an advisory group which has a concern that goes beyond health. Now, of course, I see as well that having lots of experts around the table slows down (laughs) uh, any decision of any committee. So I see that there is a balance to be struck here that's quite difficult. But um, I think what we have learned overall is that a broader approach probably would have led to a more effective response. Katerina and her team were directly involved in helping address this specific issue, the need to tie together economic and epidemiological research during the pandemic. In late 2020, Katerina's team presented the Daedalus model, a modelling structure that could simulate the impact of interventions like lockdowns on both disease numbers and the impact across 63 distinct economic sectors at the same time describing mathematically the side-by-side health-to-societal impact trade-offs of pandemic decision-making. 
But Katerina sees this as really just the beginning of a broader reimagining needed to try and capture a whole array of societal factors within these forecasting tools. Yes. So do I think that there is a stronger integration between epidemiological and economic research necessary? Yes, absolutely. And that's how I spend every day of my working week um, achieving this. In what aspects do we need that? So first, if we want to allocate resources appropriately, we need to look beyond health. We need to look at social impacts because that will determine the welfare and the growth of countries for decades to come. Evaluating interventions just for the pure health impact is going to neglect these kind of wider impacts. With respect to Pure epidemiological modeling, I think everyone has now understood that the fact of how a disease is transmitted from one person to the next is not only a biological phenomenon. It has a lot to do with behavior and behavioral economics and behavioral science more broadly is really making great advances now. And I think it's very important to include them into infectious disease modeling in order to make better predictions. Now, behavioral economics or the insight that the individual choices that individuals make about prevention, that that is important is not new. I mean, it has been around since the 1990s. There is this field of economic epidemiology, which gives very different projections sometimes about the optimal control and the possibility of eliminating or eradicating infectious diseases. And I think we have to go back to these early authors. And we are, we are doing that in order to understand how we can improve control and eradication efforts. As you can imagine, evaluating the behavior of individuals in a hypothetical lab setting is really difficult. So the pandemic gave us a lot of data on behavioral response. Now, of course, at the moment, the challenge is how to analyze this and purify it from other influences that happened at the time. But that is something that behavioral economists are working on a lot at the moment. With respect to what my work really is more about, is about the integrated economic epidemiological modeling. So the model that we have developed for COVID-19 in order to support countries in their pandemic response, looking at both health and economic impacts. So this model was developed as a collaborative effort between epidemiologists, mathematical modelers and economists. And we are now using this in order to prepare countries better for pandemics and particularly make decisions what pandemic preparedness interventions could be the most beneficial. So again, the question in what shall we invest and in what shall we maybe not invest our funds. It's a huge challenge. It's decades worth of further research and investigation, but work that Katarina and her collaborators remain on the cutting edge of. Last year saw the founding of the Jamil Institute Kenneth C. Griffin Initiative for the Economics of Pandemic Preparedness to help lead the way in this exciting and urgently needed new branch of health economic investigation. Under Katarina's leadership, the initiative is bringing together experts from across Imperial College, the WHO and international research programmes to fill in the gaps that COVID-19 uncovered. 
Our aim will be first to develop an online dashboard that will give estimates for countries on the return on investment to specific interventions, such as surveillance, investing in vaccine, R&D and manufacturing capabilities in surveillance, test and trace capabilities. So that's one outcome. And the other objective of the project is to do case studies in specific countries. Think about questions, what are optimal pandemic mitigation strategies, for example, once pandemics strike? How could we, for example, allow a minimum level of migrant workers into a country that follows an elimination strategy? How can we optimize lockdowns to reduce the number of individuals that fall below the poverty line? Questions such as these we are thinking about at the moment. We also think about more concretely how big should the stockpile be for the Airvibo vaccine to combat Ebola outbreaks. How many do we need considering different ways of using this vaccine with different strategies? So that is one line of work. I'm also working on the economics of malaria elimination, where we think about more broadly also political and negotiation strategies between countries as they try to eradicate this disease within a region. And then, of course, I have my PhD students, <laughs> which are a source of inspiration for me and which conduct very exciting research that they feel passionate about. It's an exciting time to be working in this field. There's big questions to be answered. There's governments keen to know how they can invest their money to help those most in need right now, and how to shore up the defences before the next inevitable pandemic rears its head. You can follow along as Katerina and her team uncover answers to these by following on Twitter at, at imperial underscore Jamil. With so much to look ahead to, I had one final question for Katerina. What was she personally most excited to see develop in the next five years? I think it will be my students. I'm really inspired by my postdocs, by my students who say, I want to learn more about macroeconomics. I'm disappearing for two weeks to go on a course to learn more about behavioral economics, about macroeconomics, about econometrics approaches. So I think that is, I find that super inspiring because I have the feeling I kind of contribute to that there will be a new generation of epidemiologists and also economists who have the passion to straddle between the two disciplines.